Here's today's reminder. If your church is going to grow, you have to equip your leaders. But how do you do this? How do you empower the leaders at your church to lead well? Join us at equiplab.com backslash church leaders. We're here to equip your ministry team to thrive. Just go to equiplab.com backslash church leaders and join us today. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day. And in this series, we are exploring the church's stance on LGBTQ issues. This has been a pressing conversation for some time, and we believe it is only growing more important that believers and church leaders engage in this conversation with both love and wisdom. There are many questions that Christians are wrestling with, including what does it mean to love someone in the LGBTQ community while not compromising what the Bible says? Can someone be both gay and Christian? Should we use someone's preferred pronouns? And how can pastors best address these topics with care from the pulpit? We'll explore questions like these from multiple angles, theological, academic, cultural, and social. We'll also hear from the local pastor's perspective. Our guests are more than experts. For some of them, this conversation is extremely personal. We hope that this series will be informative and will help you navigate this challenging area of life and ministry with wisdom, with grace, and with love. And now, let me introduce you to this week's guest. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. In today's conversation, I am joined by Dr. Julie Slattery. Julie is a clinical psychologist, author, speaker, and the president and co-founder of Authentic Intimacy, a ministry devoted to reclaiming God's design for sexuality. She's the author of 10 books, and hosts the weekly podcast, Java with Julie. She also provides many helpful resources for ministry leaders at sexualdiscipleship.com. Now, in this episode, Julie and I discuss three competing narratives about sexuality and why many in the church are limiting their understanding of God and sexuality by embracing incomplete narratives. Julie describes why many young people are attracted to sexuality as defined by the greater culture, how the church has unknowingly contributed to this, and what we can do now to better provide guidance as we minister. We also touch on how we can respond to legislation around these topics in a way that keeps us tied to God's mission. You'll want to share this one with your entire ministry team. There's such great wisdom here. So please join me now in my conversation with Dr. Julie Slattery. Julie, uh, such a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome Mm. to the Church Leaders Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Yeah. Now, Julie, in uh, 2012, I believe, you started Authentic Intimacy, which yes. is a ministry devoted to reclaiming God's divine for, design rather for sexuality. And mm-hmm. a lot has happened <laughs> since that time. It may not seem like too long ago, but, but honestly, when we look at the world around us, um, lots of things have happened. What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen regarding sexuality and culture and the church? over the, the past nine years. Yeah, it uh, makes me chuckle when you say that, Jason. I remember in the early years, 
church is just pretty much saying to us, like, we don't, we don't need this conversation. We don't have problems like pornography or, uh, you know, people struggling with same-sex attraction. Like that's, that's other places. And now it's like uh, every church is saying, please help us with this conversation. And I think one thing that's happened is uh, the brokenness and confusion that probably was always there now has permission to come out. Mm. Uh, and so even if you look at the Me Too movement, the events we're now grappling with happened decades ago or years ago. And so uh, the abuse, the harassment was always there, but there wasn't an avenue to discuss it. Same with uh, pornography, obviously, is becoming worse and more prolific, but it was always there. Uh, and I think the same is true with, uh, with the gender conversations, LGBTQ. Again, people have been struggling with these issues for a long time. But now, not only is there room to talk about it, it's actually being encouraged uh, to begin wondering and identifying with, with uh, sexual minority groups. And so there has been a lot that's changed. I remember just right when we started the ministry was when Fifty Shades of Grey was coming out. And all this talk about mommy porn. And at that point, we thought like, wow, like culture is changing so fast. And now that seems like the good old days with, uh, <laughs> with things that we're grappling with today. So I have a lot of empathy for church leaders who are just being hit from every side with questions and different aspects of, of pain and tension around sexual issues. And just thinking like, I don't have training for this. Nobody taught me how to address these issues. So, uh, so we're kind of all swimming in the deep end these days. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And, and I, I would love to get in, uh, in in a moment here on how you're helping us navigate through some of those tensions and these conversations and these things that we see around us. But before we jump into that, um, I'm just curious, Julie, what are you hearing from parents and what are you hearing from church leaders right now when it comes to LGBTQ issues? You know, what, what are specifically they kind of wrestling with the most right now? Well, I think, first of all, when you look at uh, the young population of teenagers and, and early 20s, just the normalization of everything around LGBTQ. Um, there was a private research study that came out, I think, a week or two ago that found that 30% of women under the age of 25 identify as either lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. And so when you're talking about 30%, that is, wow. uh, that is that is a lot of young women that are saying, hey, this is who I am. And so uh, whereas traditionally we would say that less than 5% of people would identify uh, somewhere within the LGBTQ spectrum, the numbers of the younger generation and the normalization of it is overwhelming. I, and so parents are saying, hey, I raised my kids uh, to believe in God and the Bible, uh, and maybe they still believe in God and the Bible, but this has now become something that, uh, that God seems to be embracing from their perspective. Uh, I think there are a lot of pastors wrestling with, is this an issue that we need to take a stand on? If we mm -hmm. do, what kinds of, uh, what kind of implications come with that from both our congregation as well as from the legal concerns and what's happening in our world. Uh, and it, so those are some of them around LGBTQ. And it's just a real grappling of, okay, what does the Bible say? And is the Bible trustworthy? And um, do we need to go back and re-examine 
uh, what a biblical sexual ethic is and did Jesus address these things? And so what we're also seeing is that questions about sex are creating questions about God. Mm. And, uh, and so I truly believe that all of our sexual questions are also spiritual questions. And so when God and sex become confusing, then Christianity becomes confusing. So, uh, so this is a matter that I think parents and church leaders are saying, this is not just a side topic. It actually is starting to chip away at the foundation of what people believe and, and their, their trust in God is being true and being good. Yeah, and Julie, as as you were sharing there, um, you shared uh, a list of questions that uh, you know that that we're all kind of wrestling with, or m- many in the church are, are wrestling with right now. Especially pastors and ministry leaders as they're trying to, you know, um, fulfill their calling, right? The mm-hmm. people that God's entrusted to them. How how do how do they kind of navigate that? And and Julie, you help us navigate some of the great tensions that we we might have in these areas by talking about three. Um, different narratives yeah. that help kind of frame much of, of these discussions on gender and on sexuality. Uh, could you walk us through and help us better understand how we, as as the church, can most help people in regard to their gender identity and sexuality? How do these narratives help us think through this? And what are ways that we can really lean in and answer and come to some answers with some of these questions? So it's not as as confusing. So there's more clarity, perhaps. Right. Uh, Jason, I think it's so important to talk about the narratives that we even subconsciously believe about sex, because your narrative is what you refer back to when you try to make sense of something related to sexuality, uh, whether it's LGBTQ or other sexual issues we go back to our foundational understanding of why are we sexual people? Why does it matter? Why does it matter to God? Uh, And so when I teach on sex, the first thing I want to do is help people understand how you think about sex is more important than what you think about sex. Hmm. And I think traditionally in the church, we've been trained what to think about sex, like what to think about male and female, what to think about uh, marriage, instead of being trained in how to think biblically about every sexual issue. And so the narratives really challenge our assumptions of how we think through sexual issues, not just taking one topic and debating it. Um, And so I I think it's a great framework to have the deeper conversations. Uh, And so the first narrative, we'll just walk through them uh, and take a few breaths in between. But the first narrative is what I call the cultural narrative. And that's the prevailing narrative of our day. And the cultural narrative of sexuality is based on the humanistic worldview and individualistic focus that the most important thing in life is self-actualization. If you want to be happy, if you want the people around you to be happy, then you have to give them the freedom to look inward, to discover who they are, and to have the ability to walk out and live out their authentic self. Uh, and as I say that, you're like, yeah, that's that's how we think today. <laughs> and being trained in psychology, that's certainly how my field thinks about wholeness and wellness. And so when we apply that to sexuality, we say that sexuality matters because it's, cent- it's such a central aspect of our identity. And if you can't be authentic to who you are sexually, then you can't be a fulfilled and happy person. Mm. And so we define sexual morality uh, as... Uh, basically consent. Uh, as long as it's two consenting adults, you're good. 
and really giving people license or freedom to act out their true selves, whether uh, again, it's LGBTQ or it's polygamy nowadays, or it's I'm in an unhappy relationship, I wanna get another relationship. Um, and so maturity is this idea of experiment, discover, and then live, live the best you you can be. Hmm. Uh, and so we've got to understand that even those who are followers of Christ in many areas of their lives have really been discipled to think about sexuality from this perspective of God wants me to be happy and I can't possibly be happy if I'm not living out what I perceive as my authentic self. Uh, and so this is where you have a lot of Christians being confused about how could a loving God create me with, uh, with the feeling that I'm in the wrong body and then say, you can't act out on that or give me same-sex desire and tell me I have to live a life of loneliness. Uh, that is basically mixing God with this cultural narrative of sexuality. Uh, and it has a profound impact on all of our thinking even if we don't recognize it, because it really is the idolatry of our day. And God's people always tend to mix God with the idolatry of their day. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where we're living right now. Yeah, yeah. So that, that culture, cultural narrative is, is, as you said, so evident. And even as you are describing it, you know, I'm thinking of conversations that I've had literally in the last week um, with people uh, inside the church. Mm -hmm. Right, and and I can hear um, even even some some of those that they said. Well, uh, you know, the the struggle and, and what people wrestle with is, you know, why would a, a loving God put someone in a position where they might not feel quote unquote as fulfilled? Right, and so mm -hmm. and and I think a lot of those questions aren't necessarily coming from a a flippant place. No. But they're coming from people who generally care about this other person, right? Yes. Like they generally care about people. And so I think sometimes, you know, we, you know, we, we want to honor God and we know that God is a, a, a God of love. And so in our mind, we're adapting that, you know, or embracing that cultural narrative and squeezing it into God somehow and then making, you know, conclusions based upon, well, if I know that God is a loving God then he must be okay with this. He must be okay with that. He must want us all to feel as good as we possibly can feel, right? Yeah. So, so it's very, very fascinating. So that's the, the cultural narrative. Uh -huh. um, so there are two other narratives. Yes. So why don't, you, why don't you talk to us about the next narrative and how that plays into how, how we're kind of wrestling through these tensions? Mm, yeah, so the next narrative is what I call the, the purity narrative which it could also be called sort of the traditional church narrative. Mm. And uh, it's based on some truth for sure, uh, but it's a rather reductionistic look at sexuality that essentially says sex matters because it's an important moral category to God. And if you want to please God, then you will stay sexually pure until you get married. And if you obey that command, most likely God is going to bring a wonderful spouse for you and you can have shame-free sex, and uh, you can enjoy this great gift within the parameters of marriage. And most of us, you and I are probably around the <laughs> same generation. We grew up with this. Right. We grew up with uh, the, the thought that one of the worst things you can do is to sin sexually. Uh, God hates sexual sin even more than he hates every other sin. And so good Christians uh, just stamp down, push down any sexual desire 
uh, other than the desire they might experience between uh, a husband and wife in marriage. And that's, that's the sexual ethic you live by. A morality is staying a virgin until you get married and then keeping sex within marriage. Uh, maturity is the same thing, that you wait until marriage and you get married and you enjoy sex within those confines. And again, I want to say that there are certainly elements to this which are very biblical and we shouldn't throw away. But we also have to recognize that this is a very incomplete picture of what the Bible says about sex. Mm. And because it's so incomplete, uh, we find that a lot of people have been disillusioned by it. Uh, for example, people that say, hey, I saved sex for marriage and marriage never came. Hmm. Or I saved sex for marriage and sex has been awful. Uh, and I feel like I was sold a lie because my husband cheated on me or sex mm. is painful. Uh, we have people that don't feel like they fit within that narrative. Somebody that has experienced sexual trauma and all they hear about sex is it's wrong outside of marriage. They begin to internalize that deep shame or those who have, who have slept with people outside of marriage are mm -hmm. like, am I now uh, a second class citizen? And does God, can God ever redeem my story? So you kind of have these these us versus them sinners and the Pharisee conversations around sexuality traditionally. And then when we apply this to the LGBTQ conversation, there's literally no context to understand gender dysphoria, same sex mm. attraction, other than God wants you to conform and get married. And somehow that'll magically fix everything. And so we have, we have all these things in our culture and experience today that are pushing on that traditional church narrative and people saying, Hey, God and sex, they don't make any sense. <laughs> and if all you have to choose from are the purity narrative and the cultural narrative, we see a lot of Christians just saying the cultural narrative fits my reality mm. a lot better than the purity narrative. And a narrative will only be received if I can fit it within my personal story. Um, so we see a lot of young Christians in particular deconstructing from Christianity because they can't find themselves in what they understand as God's narrative of sex. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, Julie, as you're talking through this, because I, I imagine that the majority of people um, listening in hear those two narratives and go, yes, those are the two narratives. Yeah. Right. Like that's yeah. that's kind of all we know, um, yeah. because, you know, what the culture is doing and then when this this purity narrative that the church has embraced for so long. And as you say, there are people on both sides. Uh, a lot of younger people are saying, well, I can't I can't embrace that purity narrative because it, it doesn't make sense either for me or for friends that I love or care about or things that I've seen, you know, and, and in that purity narrative, that's why we have a lot of conversation now about singleness, mm -hmm. right? And, and how the church and uh, uh, probably unintentionally devalued singleness for, for yes. a very, very long time. And so a lot of people who have wrestled through that. Um, so, so there are people that would say, man, that just doesn't match up. So I guess... The alternative is this cultural narrative, right? Like, so, so, so I guess this is right. You know, if God is a loving God, he really loves people, then, then this may line up better. Then there are people on the flip side who are like, the culture is a mess. Yes. There's no way that we're going to give in, you know, this kind of language, give into culture. And so there's this very defensive stand. And not only are we going to embrace the purity narrative, 
but we are going to dig in hard and we are right. going to build big walls and, and, and it almost gets aggressive, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and for, for many people, um, well-meaning, well-intentioned people, th these are the only two narratives that, that we've heard for so long. Yeah. And so there's this dichotomy, it's a false dichotomy, but there's this dichotomy that, that we're wrestling through. So Julie, you, you help people understand this third narrative yeah. that helps us kind of reconcile the, this tension um, to a place that, that is, seems to be much more um, biblical and mm -hmm. much closer to the heart of God, right? So, so yeah. what's that third narrative? Yeah, so the third narrative is not just looking at the thou, thou, thou shalt nots in the Bible, not just mm -hmm. looking at the sexual immorality passages, but really asking the question from Genesis to Revelation, what is the story of sex in the scripture? And what we see is that the story of sexuality in the Bible is much more about the metaphorical significance of sexuality, um, that sex and sexuality were primarily created to be a form of revelation. Hmm. Uh, just as everything else in the created world does, sex speaks of the nature of God. And so when we look at creation, when we look at the way scripture refers to creation, it's always pointing at physical things as a way of understanding spiritual truth. So the way God created a tree, we read in, in Psalm 1, look at a tree and see what happens when a tree is is rooted by streams of water and mm -hmm. constantly getting nourishment? It it blossoms in season and bears fruit. Uh, you cannot read a chapter of the Bible without it referring to some physical aspect of creation to help us understand the nature of who God is. And for some reason, we have a real disconnect with sexuality this way. We don't like to think of God and sex in the same sentence. We don't even really... Uh, become cognizant of the fact that God created us as sexual people. He crafted the male and female sexual organs the same way he crafted the rest of us. Uh, he created the orgasm. Uh, mm -hmm. He created sex to be the way it is. Uh, all the neurochemicals that go through our body, the excitement, uh, the vulnerability, the intimacy, and he did it as a form of revelation. And what we see in scripture is the larger story of sex is that God created sex primarily to be a metaphor of his covenant love uh, that we see both in the Old Testament and New Testament sexuality most often mentioned in reference to what it is to be in covenant with God, what it is to be faithful to him, what it is to be intimately known by him, uh, to not follow after other lovers or serve other gods. We see very sexual language, for example, in the prophets, where they describe the idolatry of Israel as a form of breaking their marital covenant, mm -hmm. that they were prostitutes, they were harlots. And we see that same imagery carried into the New Testament of Jesus constantly being referred to as our bridegroom. And uh, Ephesians chapter five is talking about this metaphor of as Christ readies the church, as he gives himself for the church, so does a husband do that for his wife. And, uh, and Paul connects this very clearly in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 and says, I'm talking about marriage, but I'm really talking about this metaphorically because it's supposed to be teaching us about Christ's love for the church. And so when we think about sexuality, we have to understand that this larger story is that sex is significant, gender is significant, 
because it's a profound form of revelation that teaches us about the covenant relationship that God has with his people. Yeah, that that's that's powerful. And that's that's um, another way to kind of think through all of this. And I think it gives us a foundation. But Julie, what would you say the person who says, that sounds good. I, I can see that. I can understand that. But when it comes to real life, when it comes to, you know, the issues that we're facing, how does that, you know, how does that make these tensions any easier to navigate? Yeah, I think it makes all the difference. And Mm -hmm. I've just explained something in a few minutes that actually I've been chewing on for about 10 years now. Right. And, uh, and so when Paul says in Ephesians five, like, this is a mystery that is now being revealed. (laughs) A mystery is not something we immediately grasp. And I think the reason that we keep referring back to the church traditional narrative is because it's so much easier to say, mm-hmm. save sex for marriage. Right, and, right. Uh, and because God says so. <laughs> uh, but I love that God has included in his word this deep, profound mystery of really the gospel being written within our sexuality. And, uh, and I, I take hours just in teaching and training people like how this applies to singleness, how it applies to marriage, how it applies to different temptations and struggles and areas of brokenness. Uh, so there's lots to tease out. But the best way to think of it is mm-hmm. thinking of it in terms of like a huge jigsaw puzzle. So I'm one of those nerdy people that like jigsaw puzzles. And I can't do a jigsaw puzzle unless I know what the front of the box is what is the picture I'm creating? And if I know that picture, I can take each piece of the puzzle and refer to that box and say, okay, this is going to go somewhere here in the picture. And I feel like a lot of Christians are trying to make sense of their sexuality without knowing what the front of the box actually looks like. And what the scripture is saying is that the front of the box, what makes sense of your sexuality is recognizing that our sexuality is an earthly temporal aspect uh, of humanity that foreshadows the ultimate union of Christ with his church, including male and female, including the covenant promise of marriage. Uh, Again, marriage is a metaphor. And so what Paul says is some people can skip the metaphor. They don't need marriage to teach them about Christ's relationship with the church. They go right to being intimate with God. Uh, And so it has profound uh, significance for understanding our singleness, marriage, marriage struggles, uh, struggles within sexual intimacy with marriage, any form of uh, temptation we have. Now we know, okay, this is what it's supposed to look like, but also we realize that we live in a fallen world and we live in a, a cosmic battle where the enemy will go after what is most sacred. And so not only do we have fallenness, but we have a gigantic spiritual warfare and battle around everything related to sexuality, uh, which helps me make sense of what I struggle with in my own life, as well as making sense of what I see happening to those I love and to culture in general. Yeah, specifically, as we're looking at issues related to gender identity or sexual identity, Mm -hmm. um, we look at the cultural narrative yeah we look at the purity narrative and then we look at the biblical narrative 
it's kind of easy, and, and like you said, because you know, the the cultural narrative is all over the place. So that's kind of an yeah. easy thing to kind of grasp. Mm-hmm. Um, the purity or traditional church narrative is something that's been around for a long time. If you're in the church, it's you know it's it, it's familiar to you. So it's kind of easy to to think about gender gender identity issues or sexual identity or, or different things in those two narratives. Julie, help us think through. How does the biblical narrative guide us when it comes mm-hmm. to conversations around gender identity, sexual identity, those types of things? Mm-hmm. Well, in our own thinking, I think, first of all, it gives the purpose and the significance of gender. Uh, and uh, if it's just if gender is just something that arbitrarily is in Leviticus or it's, you know, on, it's listed in these weird passages, without a context for why this even matters. It's very easy for us to write that off as archaic, like we're, we're evolved now today, uh, you know, gender stereotypes are too restrictive. And I would say even with the purity narrative, gender, I, gender roles were so restrictive that mm. a lot of males and females really couldn't find themselves in what the church said they should be. Mm. Um, you know, I, for one, as a woman, I don't, I hate women's retreats. I don't, I'm not a crafty person. You know, I I'm grew up kind of more of a tomboy. I'm a thinker. And so, yeah, there were lots of aspects of even Bible studies that were being done where I'm like, I just don't fit this. But I think what the biblical narrative does is it really points to gender as being something much more profound than our roles. It's, it's an essence of as as the church receives Christ, uh, so a female is receptive and 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 open to relationships. And I think even the anatomy of male and female are showing us something of Christ is the one that initiated intimacy with us. Hmm. So a, a man just physically initiates sexual intimacy. The woman receives the man. Uh, there is a seed that is given, the Holy Spirit in that intimacy. And, and it, it will be reproductive. And so even when we look at the body, we start to see, wow, the body is symbolic of what union really is and what life-giving really is. And, and so it helps us shed some of the stereotypical things that we've used to define male and female, some of the very restrictive traditions, and it helps us get to the essence of why male and female is so beautiful and how we can find ourselves within that. Uh, And it also gives us a reason to say, even if this is a difficult journey for me, it's one worth pursuing because if my body is revealing something profound about God, uh, then I don't want to be part of the enemy muting that revelation. Uh, I really want to know more about it. And so uh, it's a, it's a much deeper quest and a deeper conversation than just arguing over what this Greek word means or Hebrew word means. Uh, it, but I think it appeals to the deeper questions we're asking of hmm. why would God matter? Why would he care if two women are together or two men are together? Uh, is this just some old fashioned teaching? Uh, and it really gives you the context. I love that Jesus repeated Genesis when he said, in the, it was in the, in the very beginning, this was the purpose. A man leaves his mother and father, and so you've got gender there, and unites to his wife, and the two become one flesh. 
Uh, and again, that's the same passage that Paul repeats when he says, this is really an echo of Christ in the church. Um, and so there, there are certainly going to be people that reject that, but they're essentially rejecting the whole story of God when they reject that. It's not just one passage. And that's why I think it compels us uh, to think more deeply, to consider what God is doing in our sexuality and through our sexuality at a more profound level. And the other thing is when you understand this biblical narrative of sexuality, you realize we all fall short. So uh, me as a married woman, there are so many ways that I fall short of stewarding my sexuality in a way that truly reflects Christ in the church. And it calls us all on this journey of confession, of repentance, of pursuing integrity. And so it's not just this, oh, you guys have problems, uh, but we're all okay because we're married. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's really a humbling narrative that calls us all to something higher than what we're currently pursuing. Yeah, that, that, that's good. Now, Julie, when we're thinking of addressing um, some of these some of these questions, um, as we do life with friends in the LGBTQ plus community, um, you, you've shared and you've even touched on as we've been talking that that how we answer these tough questions is important, but maybe not as important as how well we are engaging with people, how well yeah. we are listening and trying to understand, um, because that's kind of the relational aspect of of, mm -hmm. of kind of navigating through these bigger mystery questions, right? And digging more deeply. Um, if we're just shooting off an answer, you know what I mean? Right. Um, we're not actually getting, you know, to the depth of, you know, our personal experience um, with Christ. So could you speak to a bit to this uh, uh, importance of listening when it comes to mm -hmm. conversations, um, not only when we're having, uh, you know, in conversation with someone um, who is in the LGBTQ community, but also conversations that we might be having as pastors and ministry leaders about, you know, the LGBTQ community or about gender identity and sexual identity. So relationally with the people, but then how how can we best be talking about this conversation in a way that that's most meaningful, most helpful? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. Sometimes at events, I'll be asked a question like, hey, what's your elevator speech about gay marriage? <laughs> I'm like, I, first of all, that's not a conversation you have in an elevator, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's not a conversation you have with somebody that you just met. You know, and I feel like with this, these topics, people have this sense that I have to tell somebody everything I know within a half an hour of meeting them. And that's just not how we operate with anything. And right. I don't know why we feel that burden with LGBTQ conversations. But um, the thing that has been most helpful for me is I've wrestled through what does this look like in real life? What does it look like in practical relationship? Is, is one word really grounds me. It's the word humility. Hmm. Um, because humility is really the posture that Jesus showed us on earth. Philippians chapter two says that uh, if there's one thing that described Jesus, it was that he made himself nothing and became obedient to God. He became a servant. He humbled himself. And when, when I think about these issues, I'm, I always want to remind myself first, am I humble before God? Because humility before God means that I don't have the right to redefine him. 
I don't have a right to uh, make the gospel less offensive than it is. Um, and so it curbs my temptation to, to, to twist truth. Um, and Jesus never did that. When something was going to be offensive, he didn't shy away from the truth of it. And I think that has to be the same way as, as we follow him. But Jesus also showed us, and again, Philippians 2 tells us, a humility towards one another. And so while humility before God is going to ground me in truth, humility before everybody else is going to ground me as being a gracious person. And humility with people means I want to get to know them. I want to value their story. I want to treat them with dignity, treat them, the scripture says, is even better than myself. I don't want to approach them with an agenda of I'm right and you're wrong. Um, and so I just want I want to walk the road with them and validate the pain they've experienced and look for those opportunities as the Lord prompts to share how God, how God is helping me in my life. Humility again in Philippians 2 is saying, you know, don't consider yourself better than others. And I think a lot of times in our conversations around sex, we think we're doing it right and everyone else is doing it wrong. Hmm. And so when I can lead with the fact that I'm broken as much as anybody and that it takes a daily surrender to the Lord for me to be able to walk with integrity, um, then when we do need to have those conversations is coming from a posture of this is who Jesus is in my struggle, not, uh, not a heavy handed preaching or um, you're my project that I'm trying to fix, or I have to convince you of this or that. Uh, yeah, I've had to really get over this feeling that it's my job to fix somebody or convince somebody. That's not my work. That's God's work. And that can be in friendships, but where it's most difficult is say, for example, parenting relationships. Mm. Uh, you feel like, what can I say to change the heart of my child? And there's really nothing you can say. You can just be a faithful witness of who Jesus is in your relationship with them. And, um, and so I think we've really, again, there's lots of different ways of explaining this. Mm -hmm. And I've heard it from people and some who you've interviewed who have just shared their own journey of this. But for me, that one word again is humility and checking my spirit before the Lord. Am I humble before God? And is my posture one of humility towards other people? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's incredibly helpful. And it helps us again, you remember that, that we were called to, to humanize, mm -hmm. you know, those relationships. We're not called to, to step back on some theoretical level, but Jesus came to live among us, right? You know, God with us. And it's that idea that, that that relational commitment and that journey and that ongoing conversation, that listening, um, rather than just thinking we have um, all the answers. And, and as you said, I imagine as a parent, that's a lot more challenging because we feel a responsibility as a parent to help guide our children, you know what I mean, and, and help them avoid things that might hurt them or might make life more difficult for them or whatever that might be. So as we kind of process through those conversations, understanding that sense of humility, are there ways that, that you have seen that uh, ministry leaders have been uh, more effective 
in helping people navigate those? Are there, are there specific um, thoughts, ideas, ways to go about these these conversations that might be more beneficial as opposed to less beneficial? Yeah, I think one way is, uh, and this is why we started the podcast the way we did, Jason, talking about sexuality in general before talking about LGBTQ issues. Right. Um, because when we talk about sexuality in general, it brings up all the different ways that we experience pain and brokenness and we struggle with sin. Uh, and there are many ways. So you're not isolating this one topic and saying, these are the problem people, this is the problem issue. Uh, you're not you're not making people feel like they don't belong in the conversation or they don't belong in the body. Uh, when we talk about sexuality in general and all the ways that uh, the enemy messes with it, all the ways that that we uh, collude with the enemy to mess with it, um, we we begin to become aware of like the, the prophets did, Lord, forgive me and my family for the ways that I have not honored you. Mm -hmm. Not Lord, forgive the people out there. Repentance begins with me. And uh, when leaders do that, and to the extent that it's appropriate, they share that my struggle may be different from yours, but I have struggled with sexual sin, with temptation, uh, I, I've been through counseling and I'm not opposed to going back um, because this, this is a hard area in my life. And it's an area in which I daily have to die to myself. I think when we as leaders uh, model that and are honest about that, we're not just calling the people that struggle with uh, gender dysphoria or same-sex attraction. We're not just calling them to self-denial. We're seeing that Jesus calls us all to that, that that is a human call. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, it will cost you. And I think we pre presented it in such that if you're married and heterosexual, then following Jesus should cost you nothing. And honestly, to honor God in our sexuality within a heterosexual marriage actually means a lot of self-denial. Right. And we don't talk enough about that. It, it actually requires repentance and forgiveness and grace. And I think when people see that we're all on a similar journey, it opens up the potential dialogue uh, to connect as we pursue Christ instead of feeling like people are isolated. Yeah, Julia, that's that's super helpful. You know, as we're, we're considering the, um, th those three narratives again, the cultural narrative oftentimes shapes what our government decides to do, right? Because our, our government typically isn't in the, you know, the purity narrative or the no. biblical narrative, right? It's the culture. It's what's going on around us. So so there are things that we um, are experiencing, even though we may not embrace the cultural narrative, the cultural narrative exists and it has an yeah. impact on our lives. And, and one of those ways is through um, legislation, you know, the government does. Um, and so there, there's a lot um, over this past year about um, considerations in regard to restricting student athletes um, to competing only based upon their biological sex and not their gender identity, you know, and that, so that's, that's been a conversation, you know, there was conversation in legislation not too long ago about, you know, what we'll refer to as the bathroom bills, right? Requiring people to use public restrooms based on their biological sex. So 
many of us may be grieved that our culture is, you know, has um, a confusion that this cultural narrative exists and is what it is. And, and we want to preserve a biblical understanding of gender in society. Uh, there's also this recognition that these, uh, this legislation impacts real people with real lives, right? Mm-hmm. So this goes back to this tension, right? Um, yeah. uh, it's one thing to talk about winning some sort of culture war, right? Um, which is uh, bandied around quite a bit. But it's another to know that, uh, you know, there are people, have someone in your life that you care about, that you love, knowing that they're going to experience um, extreme anxiety every time they're faced with um, having to go to the public restroom or, or whatever it might be, you know. And and this is just what we've dealt with recently. Um, right. Who knows what other uh, legislation will come in, in the years to come, right? So th- it's a very real tension, um, yes. you know. So how how can we? really kind of navigate this on a very practical level, thinking through, again, that cultural narrative sometimes places things upon us. Right. Um, but then we have these um, personal convictions, you know, these mm-hmm. biblical convictions. And then at the same time, we have compassion and care and love for people. Uh, all these things kind of mix together. Do, do laws such as this um, are, are they are they needed and necessary? Are they do they do more harm than good? Is that is there another way? I mean, h- how do we navigate this? Because this is what we're really facing, right? And and we'll only face more of this. So right. so how can we best kind of you know move, move and process through this? Yeah, I, I think first of all recognizing that um, that our again our culture's belief about sexual issues stems from their belief about everything else about mm-hmm. worldview what what will bring wholeness what will bring happiness uh, people that are passing these bills don't have the agenda of i want to make life miserable for people they really have the belief that what is keeping people sad what is keeping them depressed what is keeping them anxious is an unnecessary shame that we're putting on them mm. and so if we can erase that shame then people will be happier and they'll be freer. And so I think we can, we need to understand the motivation. You know, having met with people, for example, that work at abortion clinics, they don't go to work saying, I want to kill babies. Mm. They go to work saying, uh, I know all these women for whom having an unplanned pregnancy would mean poverty, uh, would mean the end of their career goals and educational goals. And I want these women to thrive. And so I think it, we have to begin with an understanding and an empathy that the reason these bills are coming about is because people genuinely believe that they will bring about human flourishing and happiness. But at the same time, we have to have the conviction that we have a different understanding of what it means to flourish as human beings, that actually the more we give ourselves freedom from, uh, from a moral truth, it might feel like freedom, but in the end, it's going to lead to more bondage, which mm. is really what we're seeing. Isn't it interesting that in the middle of sex positivity, uh, we're seeing the suicide rate go out. We're seeing uh, epidemics of loneliness and anxiety, particularly among the younger generations. And this is before COVID. Uh, right. Research coming out that's saying over 50% of Americans say that they almost always feel lonely. 
And so we have to say that actually it is not sexual expression that brings happiness. It's true intimacy with God and with other people. And that true intimacy means saying no sometimes to what we think we need in order to say yes to something more profound and lasting. And so we've got to understand that there's a clash of worldviews. And in the short term of history, the cultural worldview is going to win. Right. Uh, and we have to be okay with that. And there's a time to speak with our voice when we're voting or uh, if you're on city council or school, bo school board to say, I believe that more flourishing will happen. And even if we look at the research, uh, I don't believe that we're, this is going to lead to more wellness. But then we also have to count the cost to say, Jesus very clearly said, I'm coming to bring in a new kingdom and it's going to conflict with the earthly kingdom. And if you follow me, you're going to be persecuted and ridiculed the same way I was. And uh, we are moving into that very quickly. And to be a follower of Christ means that we accept that and that we live for eternity. We don't just live for what, what's going to happen in the next 20 years. And so, um, you know, one thing that I like to think about is that sexual pain will always reveal shallow theology. And that is we're, we're getting into these waters of sexual pain and questioning, either we will abandon Christian theology or we're going to have to press much deeper into what it really means to be a Christ follower and what it means to live for him and to live for eternity. Yeah, uh, that, that perspective, I think, is incredibly important, Julie. And where, where in that is the place where we're saying we're making room for those people who are wrestling, mm -hmm. um, those people who are confused, those people who maybe have no um, no upbringing, no guidance, no you know nothing that would make them think any differently than the cultural narrative, yeah. and that's all they know. How do we make that space to to minister to them, and what does that mm -hmm. look like? in a way that w when we talk about, you know, that things are going to get more challenging um, yes. before they get less challenging, right? So so how do we, how do we not, I, I guess the big question is, how do we not, you know, pull up into ourselves and say, well, this is, mm -hmm. this is what we know to be true. And so we're just going to have to hunker down and hang on because things are going to get rough. How yeah. do we continue to live out the mission, right? Mm, so true. Yeah. So I think part of it is, I don't think we need to be talking about sex a whole lot. <laughs> I, I think we need to be talking about Jesus. Nice, and, yeah. Uh, so actually when I meet somebody and they ask me what I do, I, I never come out and say, well, I talk about Christianity and the Bible or God and sex because immediately that could be a closed door to a relationship. Right. Um, and so we have to understand that our friends, our neighbors, our world's biggest problem is not what they believe about sex. It's what they believe about God and what they mm -hmm. believe about will ultimately make them fulfilled and happy. And so while we have these kinds of conversations within a discipleship context, and they're very important within the church, our conversations with the culture and with our friends and our coworkers need to be uh, forming relationships with them and sharing with them who Jesus is. Uh, because uh, if we continue to go down this road, 
we will continue to experience pain because of the choices that we're making as a society. And people in pain are open to even a very offensive truth. Mm. And so I think that we have the opportunity to share the gospel to people who are hurting, who have tried the world's way, who have gotten burned, who are lonely, who are desperate. And so uh, we need to be winsome representatives of who Jesus Christ is. And we can talk about sex later, uh, but the, the important thing is who is Jesus Christ and is he worth trusting? And can he rescue me from the pain that I'm in? Uh, and so our focus in terms of interacting with our world has to be around who Jesus is, not around what is a right sexual ethic. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Super powerful. Julie, so much that you share with us um, from, from your experience and from helping people just kind of navigate this and in, in what we're seeing in the world today. Super helpful. Um, any any additional words kind of as we're wrapping up? You've got the ears of, of pastors and ministry leaders. Any additional words of um, advice or encouragement that you'd like to leave with them? Yeah, I just like to say, hey, we're in this together. Uh, you know, God doesn't work primarily through an individual. He works through his body. Right. And so we need uh, we need everybody's commitment and voice and spiritual gifting and testimonies to be working in concert and to really equip the church and to reach uh, a hurting world. So I'm so thankful that you're doing this podcast series and that uh, you're really part of equipping um, pastors and counselors and lay leaders um, because it really is going to be movement of God through his whole church and um, that's going to make a difference in our world. Amen. Excellent. Julie, if those listening in want to connect with you, connect with your ministry or the resources that you have, what's the best way they can do that? Yeah, probably the best way for this conversation is we have a website that is just for Christian leaders. It's called sexualdiscipleship.com. And uh, it's where we have these kinds of conversations and training. Um, so that would be a great follow-up resource for church leaders. Our, our main website is Authentic Intimacy, and that's uh, more the content that we produce for people that are asking questions and hurting and struggling through issues. So you can find lots of content at both those two websites. Excellent, Julia. And we'll have links to those websites in our show notes for our listeners. So we encourage you to uh, to dig more deeply into this conversation and, and find some of those additional resources. Julie, it's been such a pleasure to have you with us here on the Church Leaders Podcast. Thank you for all you're doing for the kingdom and uh, for making the time to be with us today. Thanks, Jason. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. Be sure to check out the other episodes in this series. You don't want to miss out on the full discussion. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any of our interviews. We'd appreciate it if you could take just a few moments to let us know your thoughts by leaving us a review on your preferred podcast platform or sending an email to podcast at churchleaders.com. Your positive reviews and ratings help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.